if you like me, you're not going to want to open your car door, drag me into the burrow ditch, and start beating me to death, which is what I don't want, right? So I want to have a pleasant conversation. Now, the flip side of that is, if you're the motorist, you have a job. Your job is to make me like you, because it is really hard to write somebody you like a citation. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode seven. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you adapt and thrive. So far, the Stay Free Forever podcast has featured two felons whose convictions were tied to addiction in the drug trade, one whose conviction came about as a result of grand theft, two lower level offenders whose crimes against the state were also rooted in addiction, and one change agent whose company seeks to transform the criminal justice system into one that routinely produces people who can, with help, turn their own lives into responsible and productive ones. Who we have not yet heard from is someone from the front lines of law enforcement, someone who has seen up close the wreckage, both literal and figurative, that results from all of that addiction, risky thinking, and behavior. My guest today is someone who chose to use his authority not just as a tool to enforce and restrain and incarcerate where necessary, but also as a sort of social leverage to help people see a better way. At one point during his 10 years as a Wyoming Highway Patrolman, James Weck earned the following accolade from a motorist who took the time to write to his supervisor. Quote, Officer Weck rightfully pulled me over for speeding, and I received a written warning. What I really received, more than that, was a talk about safety by an utmost courteous professional who told me, don't foolishly put yourself at risk over being a few minutes late to your destination. Today, James Weck is a 37-year-old law student with an interest in becoming a judge. He is an Illinois native who was reared in Ohio with one sibling, and they are the children of a nurse and a petroleum engineer. James says his skills as a child ran toward math and golf, and as a boy, he wanted to grow up to be a fighter pilot. After high school, he joined the Army in the 10th Mountain Division, with whom he served two tours in Iraq. After leaving the military in 2009, James returned to Ohio and enrolled in Tiffin University, where he graduated in 2012 with a degree in Homeland Security and Terrorism. Today, James supports his law school studies by working four days a week as a plumber in Riverton, Wyoming, where he also does research for a professor and has an externship with an attorney. It was during his visit to our home to fix a leaky pipe that I first met this ambitious, hardworking, and articulate young man. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, James Weck. Cliff, thanks for having me. James, it's my pleasure. One thing I never got as a kid was kids who liked math. Tell me about that. Math always made sense to me. Math has rules. If you follow the rules, you come up to the correct answer. You know, that, that's just the simplicity of math. It's funny that I am really good with numbers. I love math and the rule. And here I am going into the legal profession where it is not so clear. It is not cut and dry. But math has always been a foundation for me for those reasons. Huh. It just makes sense. That makes sense. It was lost upon me. And I wish I had found someone who had that kind of inspiration about it who could break it down that clearly. And then your other abiding childhood interest was in golf. How'd you get into that? So that was forced upon me by my parents. Uh, <laughs> I was about six. My dad played golf growing up, played when I was a kid. And, you know, they got us golf clubs, put us into lessons. And all of a sudden, one day I find out I really enjoy golf. And I have played golf now for about 31 years. Then it's just one of those things that I do recreationally for fun. Bit of a stress release, I bet. Um, golf has never been a stress release. Uh, <laughs> I do enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. It's a challenge. But for me and trying to make that perfect shot, you know, which you never get. But that's, that's the challenge. Golf is a funny game. It's played by a lot of perfectionists. And there's nothing perfect about golf, which is why clubs are broken and thrown. 
When's the last time you broke or threw a club? The last time I broke a club intentionally, it's been since I was a kid, maybe in my early 20s. I found that breaking clubs gets expensive, paying to get them repaired and all that. Then you get a club that's down. It's just, it's not worth taking the frustration out on the stupid piece of equipment when the idiot swinging the club is the real problem. I try not to damage my equipment anymore. An early lesson in natural consequences, perhaps? Oh, boy, yeah, it was. I remember I broke a couple of clubs when I was in high school golf. I was a kid, 15, 16 years old. My parents covered the cost, but I had to pay my parents back. You know, then I didn't have a club for several weeks while it's getting repaired. You know, it just comes into that whole risk assessment, cost-benefit analysis that you learn to run in your day-to-day life of is taking my anger out on this stupid club worth what's going to come later. Now I repair my own clubs. I, I build them and I repair them. It still costs me money. And I really don't want to pay money to fix a thing that was perfectly fine to begin with. Very rational, very reasonable. What's the worst trouble you've ever gotten into in your life? I had the benefit of having an older sister. When she was a couple of years older than me in high school, I got to see what happens when you lie. And I took notes. They already knew the answers when they were interrogating my sister. And I'm watching her lie, knowing that they already know the answers. And then I watched what happened after the fact. And she always ended up in trouble. And then when I got to that point where I was driving and I was getting some freedom and whatnot, I remember the first time I had done something and my dad comes in the house. I can see that he's madder than can be. And, you know, he just says, did you do this? And I looked at him and just said, yes. And all the steam came right out of it. He didn't even know how to respond to that. He'd been, you know, he was ready to pounce as soon as I lied. And he just stopped and he looks at me and he goes, well, don't do that again. I've cracked the code. I've cracked the code. You know, I never really got into a lot of trouble. I never really did anything real bad anyway. I just, I was always focused on what I was doing, whether it was academically, athletically, when I was in the army, everything was focused toward training and being in the best shape and being the best I could be. We were in the Iraq and Afghanistan war. So it wasn't a question of if we were going to go to war, it was when. I've always had this focus on what is going on in my life right now that I'm, I want to achieve and then not doing anything that's going to jeopardize that. I got put in detention once in high school, managed to keep my parents from finding that out. A couple of minor things in the army, but nothing ever materialized because I was honest about it. You know, and they were never major. I never even got so much as an Article 15 where I might have deserved one. But I found that if you were honest and took ownership of what you had done, you came out better off than if you tried to hide and cover it up. And so I I really can't say that I've ever been in a lot of trouble. What would earn a soldier an Article 15? Well, the Article 15 is the beautiful coverall that pretty much the Army can jam you up for anything. Really, it is It is one of the blanket judgments or punishments that they use. Being late, not doing your job, not showing up, not performing, or let's say if you're drinking underage, you get Article 15 for that. And the Article 15 gives the command, and it doesn't require the judicial system. There's no legal punishments. So they can do things like give you um, extra duty, restrict your access to legal base, things like that, it would be the equivalent of basic misdemeanor crimes. You, you know, speeding. It's something everybody does. It's whether or not you get caught <laughs> is, is whether you get whether you get the citation or the Article 15. Probably 30% or so guys, especially the infantry, I mean, they're going to find their way into an Article 15 one way or the other just because it's a rowdy crowd and they're having a good time. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, I dodged a couple of them. Sure. Um, I just got lucky. In your 10 years as a Wyoming Highway Patrolman, were you ever offered a bribe? And if so, how'd you handle that? I believe I was offered a bribe one time. This guy was speeding. It was the middle of the night. We're the only ones on the road. I pull him over. 
I ask him for his documentation. He hands me his registration with the insurance and it's in one of those plastic envelopes that like the insurance companies give you. And there is a stack of bills lined into that plastic envelope. I looked at that and I pulled the registration, the insurance out of it, handed the envelope back and said, I don't need that. You know, he didn't, he didn't try to give it back to me. He didn't try to encourage me to, you know, are you sure you don't need that? He just realized that wasn't going to happen if it was intentional. And if it was unintentional, if that was just where he kept some extra cash in case, you know, he needed gas or something like that, then no harm. But that's the only time that I ever was possibly offered a bribe. What do you miss most about being a highway patrol officer? I miss my friends. You know, when you're doing the same thing with the same people for almost 10 years, you develop some tight relationships and guys you've gone through some stressful and chaotic situations with. And I don't see them much anymore. But the list of what I don't miss is very long. I don't miss the crashes. I don't miss dealing with people who are perpetually in a bad mood. I don't miss dealing with people who don't take ownership of their own decisions in their lives. I don't miss getting called out in the middle of the night because somebody made a poor decision. I don't miss any of that stuff. I am, I am so exhausted with the bad that people have asked me, do you miss it? No, no, I don't. I'm done. I've had my fill. So all of the ugliness over it. How do your older colleagues who make a career, a life, lifetime career out of it, manage to endure all that you just described? I don't have a clue. I really genuinely don't. What do you think? I think a large part of it really is just perseverance. I think that they get to a point where you have that balance of, do I stay around for five, 10 years and retire or do I walk away? I think one of the biggest fears, because I had it, is we don't know what to do when we quit. You know, we're, we're guys that live in the action. We live in the chaos. We, we enjoy all of that. But then what? What do you do after that? And, and I've had guys who asked me how life is on the outside. And I told them, it's great. My stress is gone. I said, I am happier. I am better off. Um, and one guy I was talking to and he said he was glad to hear that because he didn't know how life after would feel. I told him, I said, it takes a minute. But then you start realizing that you've been enduring ugly and, and awful things for far longer than you should be. You know, I think that most guys get to this tired point where they're over it between that seven and 10 year mark. That's when one of two things happens. They either promote or go into a different role where they get off the street and they're not doing that anymore and they get to support and do other things. Or they quit or they become a problem for their agency and get fired. Or they dig down deep, become compartmentalized, compartmentalize everything. They're grumpy, they're miserable, but they just are resilient. So they just keep going through. But that's how guys get through that phase. The anecdote that the letter writer to your supervisor told speaks to a guy who was willing to give people a break when warranted. How often were you able to do that? And what effect do you think it has? I had a different perspective than some guys. I went into law enforcement because I could no longer be in the infantry. That door was closed for me due to injuries. I wanted to help people and I still hadn't checked all of the adrenaline notches yet. I wasn't done with the adrenaline, adrenaline rush. So I knew that being a state trooper, there would be adrenaline, there would be chaos and that I would have the opportunity to help people. Those are my driving forces. There's some guys that they love throwing people in jail. They love having authority. None of that stuff was ever what really motivated me. Not even that it didn't really, it just didn't motivate me. That wasn't my thing. When it came to violations, if I believe that the person just made a mistake, 
and it wasn't egregious. Nobody else was, uh, you know, harmed by it. And they were receptive to what I was trying to get out of them as far as safety goes. I wanted to give them a warning. I didn't want to write citations. You know, there's there's money involved with that, taking money out of their pockets. There's ramifications on their driver's license and their insurance and all these other things. I didn't want to do that. So I tried to find ways to not jam people up with speed because there's so much speeding that goes on on the highway every day. For me and trying to just keep things in a fair and balanced manner, I would treat every day like a new day. But if I came out in the morning and I pulled a guy over and he wasn't getting the message and I just felt like he deserved a citation at nine over because he wasn't going to change his behavior. Guess what? Everybody nine over and above that day, they're getting the same treatment. Now, the next day may be different. I may come out the next morning. I pull over some pleasant old lady who is going 82, 12 miles an hour over the speed limit. And I just can't bring myself to write her a citation. Guess what? Everybody 82 and below that day is getting a warning. So that was kind of how I treated speed, just so that day to day, there was some kind of consistency in that day. Because every day, the traffic is different. And so I tried to do that. Now, there were obviously outliers. I mean, let's say I pulled over grandma in the morning at 82, didn't write her a citation. I get a guy going 80 later that day and he is just belligerent and he's not getting it at all yeah well guess what he's going to get a ticket because the idea was to change the behavior and whatever tool i could get that behavior change with that's what i went with if i could avoid citations i did did you have a quota no there were no quotas they wanted us to be active and they wanted us to be working you know, they don't just want us sitting around, you know, the taxpayers have a, have an expectation that we're doing things, but there were no quotas. Did your numbers reflect, as far as you know, fewer tickets than other officers? About the same? More? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. We all had our own motivating factors. We all worked different stretches of highway. And there were numbers. I mean, you could find the numbers. I just didn't care. You know, I was out there doing what I thought was needed to be done, and I never cared how I was in relation to anybody else. To me, it wasn't a competition. Sure. What percent does the average motorist have in influencing you in terms of whether they get a ticket or not? I feel that the motorists had a fair influence. Now, there were obviously situations where it didn't matter who you were, what you said, whatever you had done was egregious enough and it affected other people and you were going to get it. You were going to get a citation for it. But I had this idea that I came up with and it was after I'd been on for a few years. I believe that I had a job to do on that traffic stop. And I believed that the motorist or the driver and the passengers had a job to do too. Now, what my job was, was to make them like me. I wanted to talk to them in a way that they respected me, but they liked me and that we could be just pleasant human beings with another. We're in an undesirable situation, but if you like me, you're not going to want to open your car door, drag me into the borrow ditch and start beating me to death, which is what I don't want, right? So I want to have a pleasant conversation. Now, the flip side of that is, if you're the motorist, you have a job. Your job is to make me like you. Because it is really hard to write somebody you like a citation or a ticket. So if I'm trying to make you like me, and you're trying to make me like you, then one, we'll have a much more enjoyable interaction. But like I was saying, if you make me like you, man, I don't want to write you a ticket. you know. And if you're over there and... You're being honest about what happened. You're taking ownership of it. You're being respectful towards me. Well, why do I need to write you a ticket? From what I've just seen, you have every indication that you're going to change your behavior versus you're being disrespectful. You're being nasty in your words. You're not taking any ownership of what you did and provide no indication of your change of behavior. 
Well, then, then I have no other option. Now, the only thing I can do, because my words and my communication isn't getting the message through, now the only thing I have left to do is to hit your wallet. And so I'm going to take, send you on your way with a citation and let you go to court with it. So there is, there is an impact there. At least there was for me. And I think there is for a lot of officers. But there are guys I know that draw just hard lines. Like there are troopers and cops I've worked with. The law is black and white. You violated it, you get a citation. You didn't violate it, you don't get a citation. It's just that clear cut and dry. But for me, absolutely had impact. When someone is being respectful, how's your BS detector? Mine's pretty good. You know, <laughs> I never worried about really how, how they really felt about me. If they found the ability to say the words that were respectful, let's just go with that. People do not hold back on traffic stops when they have something they want to say. I have been called some fun things. People are who they're going to be. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's hard because people can, they can say the right words, but their eyes and their facial expressions, their body language, it's going to tell you the truth. But if they're trying to be honest or trying to be polite and courteous, I'd let them have it. So I'm going 15 miles over the speed limit because it's a beautiful day. It's one of those long stretches. There's not another car on the road and I don't see you. You come up behind me. And then magically, you're also the guardian angel in my right-hand seat, guiding me through the traffic stop. What do you tell me? First thing I tell you is we're going to turn our lights on, or we, I don't do this anymore, but I would turn my lights on where I wanted you to stop. We would have people that, you know, they might drive for two miles before they pull over. And I'm over here going, what are you doing? I wanted you back there. I know my stretch of road. So when the lights come on, start making your maneuver over to the shoulder. He's made that decision. That's where he wants the traffic stop. If he's chosen a poor location, that's on him. Just let him make that decision. He's turned his lights on, move over. If I've pulled over, then what do I do? You just sit in your car and wait. You just sit and you wait. Keep your hands where they're visible. You know, you don't want to be moving around in the vehicle. You don't want to be reaching in the glove boxes and reaching in the center consoles. Just hang out. Keep your hands where people can see them. You don't have to be exaggerating. You don't have to be, you know, putting your hands up in the air. Just relax. You want to roll a window down, whichever side the officer goes to. You know, he may come up on the passenger side. He may come up on the driver's side. You just want to roll down that window. Make yourself receptive to them beginning the interaction. Once you're pulled over and he walks up to the window, we can only be in charge of how we act. I can't be in charge or responsible for what you say. Start the conversation with a hello. Not a, what can I do for you? Or what's going on? What's this about? Why'd you stop me? Just a hi. How are you? Let's start a conversation with that. Because it is amazing what saying hi, how are you? can do to start a conversation off on the right foot. So I say, hi, officer. Good afternoon. How are you? That's a good start. That is an incredible start. You know, even if you don't like the guy, even if you don't like the situation, if you don't think you did anything wrong, that just starts a positive conversation. And he may be spun up. And this is one thing that I ran into and I had to realize is the officer may be spun up from a crash he worked 15 minutes ago. And then you come along, you're 15 miles an hour over. Well, he's not going to ignore that. Well, you're now dealing with an officer who just came off of a crash. Maybe it was a fatal, maybe it was something else. He's spun up saying, hi, how are you? May bring him back down. You know, it may bring him back to that point of, I'm not on that situation anymore. And I had people do that to me. You know, I, I, I'd pull over to somebody and I'd be spun up and they would just be like, you okay? You all right? And then all of a sudden I'd realize I am way too up, you know, I am just full throttle, you know, on the aggression and I'd bring it back down. So you as the driver have the ability, just like we do in every other interaction to escalate or de-escalate the situation, just in your tone, in the words you're using and just being polite and courteous. So then the officer's going to do one of a couple of things. He's either going to tell you what you did and why he stopped you. Or he may just say, I need your driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. 
I always started the conversation by telling people why we're here. You know, I felt like that is the foundation. Here's why we're here. This is what I observed you doing. But some guys don't do that. You know, they just, why did your driver's license registration group insurance? I don't understand it, but that's, that's what they do. Provide it. Give them the documentation. Don't argue with them. Don't start a confrontation. Just give them the documentation they're asking for. You know, if you have to get into the glove box, if you have to get into the center console, let them know that, you know. If there's anything that they that is in the glove box or the center console that may make them nervous or put them on high alert, just let them know. Just let them know. Then let them make the decision of how that goes forward. I've been stopped a number of times in my life. I do not have a clean driving record. And anytime I had to get in the glove box or the center console, I let the officer know that I needed to. I let them know what was in there. And I let the officer dictate how to go about that. I've had officers that said, okay, just keep your hands on the wheel. They open the door and open my glove box. Now, that's a Fourth Amendment ordeal. And, and I'm going to say that anything I'm saying is not legal advice, <laughs> but because I'm not a practicing attorney, but I have to allow him to do that. You know, for me, it was, I'm okay with that. If not, then we've got to figure out another way to go. Because if he doesn't want me to go in there, we've got to communicate. And you got to open a line of communication. How do you want me to get you the information that's in there if you don't want me to get in there? I assume we're talking about a weapon. Weapons, yes. I ran into people all the time who had weapons in the glove box center consoles. Me personally, I wasn't worried about it. If somebody's telling me they got a weapon, I know it's there. It's people who don't tell me they have a weapon that what's their intention. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe they just didn't feel that I needed to know that. That's their constitutional right. But if somebody told me those things, I'm more, I'm not going to say I'm relaxed with them, but I was just more at ease with them as a human being. And again, that goes back to me reading their facial expressions, their the tone in their voice, their body language. But just give that officer the ability to control how that's going to be done. And don't argue propose if he says, well, I don't like that. I don't want you to go in the glove box. You don't want me to reach in your car to get in the glove box. Okay, what do we do? Now they've got other tools. They can run your plates. Not the end of the world. Just avoid that confrontation. Now, once you get your documents, just hand them over. Hand them over. You don't have to explain anything. You don't have to talk about anything. You don't even have to engage in a conversation outside of the stop. I had plenty of people. They didn't want to talk to me. They were polite and courteous. They didn't want to talk about where they were going. They didn't want to talk about what they were doing. They didn't want to talk about anything. That's okay. You don't have to make that conversation. We can just say it's a nice day and have it, and go about it that way. After they've got the documentation, at some point, I would expect them to tell you why you're stopped. Now, if people didn't agree with why I stopped them, that's okay. There's a fine line between making a case for why you don't agree with what the officer is saying you did and belligerently arguing with the officer. If it comes to the point of belligerently arguing, just stop. Stop. Take it to the court. Let the court decide. Because you've got two people who are getting into an elevated, escalated situation, and it's not going to de-escalate at that point. Now, part of that's on the officer. You know, I would flat tell people, this is not the time or place for us to argue about this. I observed this. This is what I saw. You have the right to go to court and we can discuss it there. I had plenty of people that would say, oh, I didn't do that. The car that was right in front of me had just passed me and maybe it was on the other side of the corner. My radar is picking up two different speeds. I misinterpret it. And I would have people give me a very specific story about what just happened. And then based on what I've seen, I'd, I, I would say to myself, that's plausible. But they wouldn't get belligerent. So I'd tell motors, don't argue. Just don't argue. Make your case politely and courteously. If they aren't going to believe you, just say, okay. And leave it at that. Let them go do what they're going to do. And then he's going to go back to his car. When he gets back to his car, he's going to make a decision of what he's going to do. He comes back up. Don't argue. If he gives you a citation, you don't agree with it. Don't argue. That's what court's for. Go to court. 
Everybody has that right. If he comes up with a warning, even if you don't agree with what he said you did, shut up, stop talking, say thank you, and go on with your day. I had a guy, I'm not making this up, I tried to give him a warning. I had to make the traffic stop based on his driving pattern. Got up there, he was not impaired, not intoxicated. I had more pressing business, I wanted to move on. I came back up with a warning, and he continues to argue with me more while I'm holding a warning in my hands. I told him, I said, this is a warning. He told me to go write the citation, and he would see me in court. I said, okay, that's fine. You want it? You can have it. So whether you believe what he said you did or not, if he comes up with a warning, just say thank you and go on with your day. There is no reason whatsoever to make a confrontation beyond that, period. And then say goodbye. Who leaves first, you or the officer? The officer will usually tell you that you're afraid to leave or, or have a good day. Unless they tell you to wait, as soon as traffic's clear and safe, if they've terminated the traffic stop, drive away. If they've given you instructions, because I had some times where I said, hey, stay put. I've got a crash that just came over the radio. I've got to flip around right now. Let me maneuver through traffic, and then you can go on your way. So there were a couple of times I told somebody, I need you to stay where you are until, I'm, until I get going the other direction. But the majority of the time when I handed them their documentation, their citation, and I said, have a nice day. Well, that's the termination of the conversation, and they were free to go. Did you ever have to draw or use your weapon? Yes, I've had it out of my holster, and I've been ready to use it. Fortunately, I never had to fire any rounds when I was on the patrol. Um, there were felony traffic stops that I was involved in. Anytime there's a felony traffic stop, there's an entire protocol that is involved there for safety of everybody. Describe a felony traffic stop as opposed to a other traffic stop. Well, a felony traffic stop would be like what happens at the end of a pursuit. We are at a termination. We've got multiple officers there. And in that environment, that's where you see like on TV where they're pulling them out at gunpoint and they're giving them orders to go to somewhere and then they handcuff them versus going up to the vehicle. That is the most common engagement where that happens, but it does happen where you know, based on surveillance or observations that a felony occurred or someone who was wanted for a felony, you orchestrate and organize and execute a felony stop where it's safe-ish, as safe as can be for everybody involved. James, as you got to the end of your career, were you thinking about law school or did that occur to you after you took what I assume was early retirement? I didn't take any retirement. I just terminated and went on my life. But law school was actually on my radar when I started. I always expected that I was going to end up in law school. It was just a matter of when. I had to get all that adrenaline chaos out of my system. And I knew that when that was done, that was probably the direction I was going to go. So it was just a matter of waiting for the right time. How long after you quit the force did you apply to law school? I was still on the patrol. I knew that I was done. I just didn't know when I was going to quit yet. I knew I was done about a year and a half before I actually quit. And so I took the law school admissions test. And I had actually applied to law school while I was still on with the patrol. I quit about six months before school actually started. That's when I started plumbing and just moving on in a way. It was just kind of part of the exit strategy. And when was the actual exit? The exit was in February of 2022. So which law school are you going to? I'm at the University of Wyoming. For how long? I've got two years left. What's a typical day? Oh boy, there's a lot of reading. There is a lot of reading. So a typical day, you know, waking up, I would say seven o'clock, get ready for class. Class starts eight or 9.30, depending. Go to class, in class for however many you got today, whether it's two, three, four, five, whatever. Have some lunch, have some dinner, read. I would be reading until I got tired. There were nights that went to midnight or one o'clock in the morning, and there were nights I was done at 10 o'clock. I just was done. It is an incredible workload, and you can't get through it all. At least I can't. I'm sure somewhere there's someone smart enough who can, but that isn't me. I probably read more between August and May this year than the entire rest of my life cumulative. What makes you think you'd like to be a judge? 
you know, I had the opportunity to engage with my circuit court judges frequently and develop a positive relationship with them. I would sit back, I would dip into the courtroom when court was going on and they weren't my cases. There were times I'd just sit in the back and just watch. And I remember one time I was watching one of my circuit court judges, listening to what he was saying, what he was dealing with. And I just thought, this guy can have a bigger impact in a day or a week than I might be able to in six months. And, and that was when I said, I want to have the opportunity to do that. And so once I kicked that idea in, that really jump-started the let's go to law school. You know, before that, I was just like, oh, I'll be an attorney. But then once I saw that, it was, no, I think I want to be a judge. To be a judge, I got to go be an attorney first. We're back to law school. Let's go. Who did you look up to when you were a kid, when you were growing up? I wouldn't say it was any person specifically. And athletes were whatever. I mean, every kid wants to grow up to be a professional athlete. We can't all be six foot six. But I had such a strong interest in the military. I always wanted to just do that. People I'd meet in the military, like they were just a little different than everybody else. But it was never just one specific person. Their ability to deal with things that other people couldn't and didn't want to. You know, dealing with the nasty, ugly conflict of things. The truth is what I've learned is that is largely learned behavior. You know, I came from a very white collar background, so I didn't have a rough growing up. Uh, there are people who do. And so they have a lot of that ability from very young age. I learned it and began learning it at 18, 19 years old. But it was just getting to that point where I could handle any conflict. And I've had friends that have said that about me. They said they, they have, since I got out of the military, that they have always appreciated and respected that anytime there would be a chaotic problem, it just didn't seem to phase me. And that's, that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to get to that point in life where it was just, we're cool. You know, it doesn't matter what comes, we're cool. We're going to work the problem. And so I think that was just kind of the motivator. I just, I wanted to develop into that. Well, James, as you know, there are two other parts to the Stay Free Forever podcast interview. One of them has me share with you some writing from an online or a workbook course and get your feedback on it. You game for that? Yeah. So a, a DUI student of mine, she's in her 30s. She said she had been drinking margaritas to excess with friends at a bar, and she managed to find the car keys that they had taken from her, and she drove her car into a ditch. The question says, what did you think of this course? And she wrote, I realized that I was an angry driver. I learned a lot about not being selfish. The true stories is what got me. You know, driving drunk and thinking I'm okay. It's not okay, thinking I'm safe and unstoppable. I put myself and a lot of people in danger. This is my first DWUI, but I will admit I have driven intoxicated before. Someone told me when you're speeding and you're in an unfamiliar town, show that town some respect and obey the law. I always think of that now. You know, I don't even want to drink. It causes so much heartache for my loved ones. I appreciate any time somebody can look at an event like that and think about the bigger picture. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in where we are in the moment. And I think that what that individual is doing is starting the process of the cost benefit analysis of the risk analysis in her own life about what she's doing and what are the consequences you know and i think that that is is a necessary part of just developing as a functional human being you know i'm not saying that, that individual is not a functional human being but just we we all need to continue working on that and getting to a point where we think about not just ourselves and what we're doing but how is what we're doing affecting other people? To hear that, I hope that for their own safety, their own well-being, that that is something that continues in their life.
The third part of the Stay Free Forever podcast holds that each of us shares a quote or a passage of something that we've read or has meaning for us that we share and talk about a little bit. Who would you like to go first? Uh, why don't you go ahead and go? All righty. This is a brief quote from a couple named Mark and Angel Chernoff, who have a book called The Simplicity Habits. And they write, no amount of regret changes the past. No amount of anxiety changes the future. Any amount of gratitude changes the present. Cliff, could you read that again, please? No amount of regret changes the past. No amount of anxiety changes the future. Any amount of gratitude changes the present. That is some heavy stuff. And that is that is accurate and true. We can't change what's gone, but we can change what's going forward 100%. That begins a lot of times with our own attitudes towards what we're, what we're facing, towards what comes our way. I love that. That is great. Were you at one time anxious about the future, and are you today? You know, I've never really been an anxious person. I have always been a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants-make-it-up-as-I-go-along kind of guy. Every chapter I've gone into in life has just been, this seems like the best idea right now. We're going to the military. That just that just made sense. It was, the, it was the right decision for now. When I got out, well, the next logical thing is let's go get my degree. You know, Then I get out of that. Oh, okay, well, the next logical thing, I got to go find a job. What would what, what I enjoy? Then it's the, oh, what's the next logical phase now in my mid-30s? I don't have any anxiety about going forward, backwards. I have also been in enough bad situations that the way I look at problems is different than a lot of people. Problems have solutions as long as nobody's dying. If we have a problem and people are dying, we can't change that. We have to, we have to mitigate. We got to stop the dying. But if nobody's dying, we, we can find a solution and we've got to have clear heads. So one of my favorite quotes is from Jocko Willink. Are you familiar with Jocko? I Willink. am not. Jocko was a officer in the Navy. He was a Navy SEAL. He led Navy SEALs in Iraq. I'm not sure if he was in Afghanistan at all, but I know he was in Iraq. One of the things for me in his book, he was talking about when he had junior officers that had to make decisions on the battlefield. You're in chaos. Things are going wrong. And his thing and his mantra and what he tells people is the stop, look around, work the problem. Because when you're in that chaos, you, you've got to take a minute to, to stop and evaluate the entire environment around you. And until you do that, you won't have the clear head to really work the problem. And, and so that's one of the things that, that, that I look at, like, okay, where am I? What's going on? What do I need to do to fix this or to get out of this safely or to change this interaction? You know, maybe I'm in a confrontation with somebody else. Okay, stop. I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't need to escalate this anymore right now. Let me look at the situation. And now let me work the problem. Let me change the tone of the situation. Let me change, let me change my interaction and see if we can we can positively affect how this is going. But that's one of my my favorite uh, quotes because we all deal with we all deal with stress. We all deal with problems. We all deal with you know some degree of chaos. It doesn't have to be crashes. It doesn't have to be gunfights in a foreign country. We all have our own levels of problems, and the only way to just get through those is to stop, look around, and work the problem. And so that's that's one of my my favorite lines from one of his books. In order to illustrate that really neat quote from Jocko, can you think of a situation where you did stop, look around, and assess the problem? There's probably been many, but think of one. I know there were times in Iraq and we, we were preached this, this idea of battlefield patience. You know, just because there's something going on and your boys are engaged over here. Well, if your job is to pull security on this backside to make sure we don't get flanked or somebody come from the rear, I can't go help them. I got to trust that they can handle their own, their own problems. 
so that was preached to us. So that, that whole idea of, of, of taking into account the whole environment was preached into me early on. But once I get into patrol, you know, I'm working fatal crashes. And there is just, you know, I'm not even there right when the crash happens. I'm getting there 15, 20, 30 minutes after the fact. You know, I remember one time I rolled in, and fortunately it wasn't a fatal, but it was a it was a mass casualty crash in the Wind River Canyon between Thermopolis and, and Shoshone. And I was the first first responder on scene, which almost never happens for troopers because there's always firefighters and EMS closer. Because here in the rural areas, there are local detachments of firefighters. I was the first first responder on scene. And I get out and there's just people everywhere. Now, we had a small SUV that had hit a rock, catastrophic blowout on a tire, caught traction, turned sideways and slammed into the rock wall of the canyon at about 65 miles an hour. And I get there and I can see the chaos on the civilians' faces. You know, This is a bad day for the people who have just stopped to help. They are not used to this. And I remember I walked up. This is just another day for me. I'm walking up and this guy runs up to me. You know, he says to me, he says to me, what do we need to do? And I looked at him and I said, I just got here. How about you tell me what's being done and I'll go from there. And so this guy, he was very, very high strung and, and, and rightfully so, walks me around and takes me to every patient who's being treated by a civilian who stopped in their car. So I've got six victims in this crash. Everybody is being treated to by somebody except one person. And then I said, well, I'll go, I'll go take care of them. And everybody else just keep doing what they're doing. But, you know, I get into that moment of chaos and it was, I'm not rushing in, you know, I'm not running in. I, I gotta, I, I have to stop. I have to get all the information. And then I can start working the problem. For me in that given day, the problem was one individual who needed somebody taking care of him. And I went and I rendered aid what I could for them until firefighters and EMS showed up and then handed them off. But that was one, and that was a very chaotic night that just went on for hours. Um, but, you know, I could have just ran in there and started giving orders to people who had already doing things, you know, that wouldn't have done any good. You know, like people, people were doing good things. Let's see what they're doing. Let them keep doing that. And I'll take over from there. Okay. Um, so that was one of those, one of those situations. That was also one of the nights that that is probably one of the best examples of the good in human beings. The number of people that I saw stop and render aid to other people you know so so often people just drive by you know it's the it's not my problem and i drive by and people stopped and rendered aid and there was one passenger in the vehicle that was stuck and the vehicle was upside down and it was a grown man and he was stuck in there and he was pinned in with the seat belt and there was a woman who was laying on the ground I bet she was five foot five, weighed 130 pounds tops. And she was holding this grown man up so that he could breathe. Because when he was hanging out, of the team, his, his lungs were being pushed on, he couldn't breathe. So she is with outstretched arms laying on the ground, holding this guy up. The guy that I was rendering aid to was in the back of the vehicle. The firefighters show up and they've got to get the jaws of life to cut this one guy out of the vehicle. And... You know, you can have all kinds of sharp metal flying around when that stuff starts getting broken and cut. And they told the gal, hey, we need to get you out of there. We got to cut this out. And she looked at me, she says, I'm not moving. She said, I, he can't breathe if I don't hold him. You figure it out. And I'm back in the back listening to this gal. I'm like, I like her. So, <laughs> so, wow. so they actually went and got some kind of, of heavy canvasy blanket and laid it over the top of her to protect her. And she held him the entire time they were cutting him out of this vehicle. But just seeing her and her resilience to just and take that risk for another human being. And, and the crazy thing is, we have no idea who this woman is. 
by the time the night was done, she was gone. We never got her name. We never got contact information for her. She came in, saved a guy's life and left. And that was amazing. You've got a brief opportunity. She might be listening. Go ahead and tell her what you'd like to tell her. I just want to tell her that was the most impressive thing I've ever seen by another human being. Just, just the care for another human being and her resilience and how exhausted her arms had to be holding him up and she would not quit. I will buy her a cup of coffee any day if I ever meet her again. That's a great story to end on. James, thank you so much for taking time to share what you know based on a lot of experience. Best of luck to you in school and I hope you do get to be a judge. Thank you, Cliff. I've enjoyed it. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Clifford Fuel again let you know that by going to stayfreeforever.com, you can check out all 17 adult courses, eight juvenile, and dozen prevention intervention courses for kids, such as vaping awareness, bullying, social media awareness, and more. Each of these courses is really all about each student's favorite subject, themselves. It is an opportunity to really think about how we think and to change risky thinking and behavior into more successful and rewarding outcomes. Online or mailed workbook versions are just $85 for youth and $95 for adults. Youth courses take anywhere from 4 to 10 hours, and adult courses 11 to 15 hours. Thanks for listening, and go to stayfreeforever.com to learn more. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email clifford at stayfreeforever.com.